You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news, everything that's new about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of the latest media reports into the research that tells us what the potential new treatments for mental illness are, gain some insight into the causes of them, and also some insights into the functioning of the brain. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma of having a mental health diagnosis and needing to take medication or other treatments for it, all that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, endeavoring to better educate the public about psychiatric issues. And this episode of Psychiatry Today was recorded for air on March 25th, 2015. Sorry the schedule got a little bit off over the last couple of weeks. If you were listening last Wednesday night, that was certainly a repeat episode. And uh, there were some issues the week before at America's Web Radio where the new episode could not be aired in that time slot. So sorry about that, but we should be back on schedule from now on. First up on tonight's show, this story got a lot of attention, and it was all over the Internet. It was some in the mainstream media, and it got a lot of attention, and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not so sure I agree with the conclusions of this study, so I thought I would go over it with you and give you my own take on it. Uh, I'm talking about the study that came from Ohio State University that said parents may help create their own little narcissists. In other words, how parents view and how they treat their children may foster narcissism in their children. Now, the study author was widely interviewed, and uh, including some mainstream media outlets like CNN and uh, NPR and so on. And he makes a very convincing case. Uh, the study was fairly well designed. But nonetheless, I have some problems with the conclusions. So let's take a look at how the researchers came to their conclusion, essentially throwing parents under the bus and saying that if kids are narcissists, it may be their parents' fault. That assertion alone is rather offensive, is it not? Right. Well, let's start with that premise. Uh, He says, Children whose parents think they're God's gift to the world do tend to outshine their peers in narcissism. In a study that aimed to find the origins of narcissism, 
Researchers surveyed parents and their children four times over one and a half years to see if they could identify which factors led children to have inflated views of themselves. Results showed that parents who overvalued their children when the study began ended up with children who scored higher on tests of narcissism later on. Well, then we have to identify and define what do researchers mean by when parents overvalue their, ch their children. How do you define that? And most importantly, how do you measure it? Well, uh, they say that overvalued children were described by their parents in surveys as, quote, more special than other children, unquote, and as kids who, quote, deserve something extra in life, unquote, for example. Well, on the surface, does that seem so unusual? Don't you think most parents would think they're more special and deserve extra things compared to other kids? Doesn't that just go with being a parent and understandably being prejudiced about your own kids? Well, um, Dr. Brad Bushman, co-author of the study and professor of communication and psychology at Ohio State, says children believe it when their parents tell them that they are more special than others. That may not be good for them or for society. Now, he conducted the study with lead author Eddie Brummelman, a postdoctoral research at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And if you want to look up the study and see it for yourself, it appears in the online edition early, but certainly by now in the uh, current edition of a journal called Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a prestigious journal indeed. Now, Brummelman said that parents with the best of intentions may overvalue their children, thinking that will help boost their self-esteem. But, he says, rather than raising self-esteem, overvaluing practices may inadvertently raise levels of narcissism. While the dangers of narcissism are well known, its origins are not, according to Bushman, who says this is the first prospective study to see how narcissism develops over time. And we'll hopefully examine exactly how they were able to do that, or how they say they did it. The study involved 565 children in the Netherlands, who were 7 to 11 years old when the study began, and their parents. They completed surveys four times, each of them six months apart. All the surveys used in the study are well established in psychology research. Parental overvaluation of children was measured with a scale that asked moms and dads how much they agreed with statements such as, quote, my child is a great example for other children to follow, unquote. Both children and parents reported how much emotional warmth parents showed 
with participants indicating how much they agreed with statements like, quote, I let my child know I love him or her, or, quote, my father or mother lets me know he or she loves me. Children were measured for levels of both narcissism and self-esteem. While many people believe narcissism is just sort of self-esteem on steroids, that is not true, according to researchers. In this study, children with high self-esteem, rather than seeing themselves as more special than others, agreed with statements that suggested they were happy with themselves as a person and liked the kind of person they were. People with high self-esteem think they're as good as others, whereas narcissists think they're better than others, according to Dr. Bushman. And I would say that's a fairly simple assessment, but a fairly accurate one. Now, they, the authors say the study found that self-esteem and narcissism also develop in different ways. While parental overvaluation was associated with higher levels of child narcissism over time, it was not associated with more self-esteem. In contrast, parents who showed more emotional warmth did have children with higher self-esteem over time, but parental warmth was not associated with narcissism. So Dr. Bushman says overvaluation predicted narcissism, not self-esteem, whereas warmth predicted self-esteem, not narcissism. So he's saying that parents who overvalued their kids wind up with narcissistic kids. Parents who showed warmth without overvaluation wind up with kids with good self-esteem. Parental overvaluation was connected to narcissism even after the researchers took into account the narcissism levels of the parents. This, in my opinion, is the sticking point, and I'll explain why in a moment. In other words, the, the researchers say it is not just that narcissistic parents wind up having narcissistic children. They say that the parental overvaluation played a key role. Now, this is the finding that, you know, although they say they have convincing proof, I take issue with it. Um, in my opinion, based on things that I've read and my own observations, personality traits are inherited and most likely genetic in nature to a far greater degree than most people are willing to admit. Uh, personality, temperament, uh, and therefore, I don't know that they can so safely and I think smugly conclude, well, it's not just that the narcissistic kids are inheriting this personality trait or disorder even from their narcissistic parents. It is the parents' overvaluing of the kids that's causing them to be narcissist, narcissistic. Uh, therefore, it's the parents' fault by uh, how they treat the kids, not just an accident of genetics. Well, a previous study 
by these same two researchers and other colleagues show just how much some parents overvalue their children. In that study, parents were presented with topics that their 8- to 12-year-old children should be familiar with, such as the astronaut Neil Armstrong and the book Animal Farm. The parents were asked how familiar they believed their children were with those terms. But the researchers also included items that did not exist, such as Queen Alberta and the tale of Benson Bunny. Well, it turns out, Dr. Brummelman says, overvaluing parents tended to claim that their child had knowledge of many different topics, even these non-existent ones. Interesting implications. All right, well, we have to take a commercial break here. We'll examine this issue further and have other mental health-related issues when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about some researchers who claim to have shown that when parents overvalue their children, they foster narcissism. Uh, the research comes to us from Ohio State University. They furthermore claim that the connection between parental overvaluation of children and fostering of narcissism is not related to parents' own inherent narcissism, an issue that, uh, an assertion rather, that I take issue with. Now, right before the break, we were talking about uh, ways in which the study shows parents overvalue children. A, for example, claim that the children are knowledgeable about basic familiar topics, and even when presented with false uh, uh, personalities or topics or important subjects, the parents are like, even if they've 
never heard of those things and don't know they're fake as presented to them by the researchers who say, oh yeah, my kid knows all about that, sure. So the researchers say this is evidence of overvaluation of the children and it's that type of attitude and approach toward the kids that fosters narcissism in their kids. Sound convincing to you? Or maybe it sounds like a little bit of a stretch? Hmm. Well, the researchers noted that parental overvaluation is not the only cause of narcissism in children. Like other personality traits, they admit that, as I said, it is partly the result of genetics and the temperamental traits of the children themselves. Dr. Bushman did say some children may be more likely than others to become narcissistic when their parents overvalue them. And he says that when he first started doing this research in the 1990s, he used to think his own children should be treated like they were extra special, but he's careful not to do that now. He says it is important to express warmth to your children because that may promote self-esteem, but overvaluing them may promote higher narcissism. And Dr. Brummelman said these results suggest a practical way to help parents. He says parent training interventions can, for example, teach parents to express affection and appreciation toward children without telling children that they are superior to others or entitled to privileges. Future studies should test whether this can work. All right. Well, again, uh, perhaps a parent who is so effusive in their praise that they would even claim their kid knew about anything and everything, whether it was something real or not, are overdoing it a bit. But in my opinion, it still is a little bit of a stretch to say that this constitutes quote-unquote overvaluation of children, which therefore leads to the development of narcissism. And even though they were careful to say that they saw this effect, whether the parents were narcissistic or not, I still think they tend to discount the effect of genetics and how personality and temperament are inherited. And to come out with this and basically, as I said in the first segment, throw parents under the bus and say, well, if you treat your kid this way, you're fostering narcissism in your kid, uh, I think is inappropriate. I would like to see more attention to this issue, but I think it needs to be studied in a slightly different way. And if other researchers could also find that this association uh, and study it in a somewhat cleaner way, then great. Maybe we can make firm conclusions. But if you heard about this study and you either worried yourself that you're maybe being too effusive in your praise for your kids and that could foster narcissism in them, or you thought about friends or family members of yours who, in your opinion, do this with their kids and, in your opinion, have fostered narcissism in their kids, 
then I would not jump to those conclusions just yet. Um, this is a good example of how a fairly startling finding from research can make a big splash in the media, uh, get reported on all the major news outlets, and run the gamut uh, all over social media and the internet. But really, it deserves a closer look rather than just accepting the conclusions whole as fact. All right, well, let's move on to our next subject on psychiatry today. And now, we're going to talk about memory loss, okay? This is one of the biggest complaints that the baby boomer generation have about their mental health and their mental functioning. Well, my memory just is not as good as it used to be. I really have a lot of trouble remembering things. And certainly, it is a complaint that I hear most, uh, very often, rather, uh, in my own private practice. Severe anxiety can cause memory problems. So can depression. When your mind uh, is not functioning in that way, um, it uh, certainly can affect thinking, concentration, and memory. Uh, but I came across this article, Five Surprising Causes of Memory Loss. And since it is a uh, concern that many people have, I thought it might be helpful and informative to discuss it with you. So let's see what the article says. You can't find your keys or you forget an appointment. For many people in middle age or older, simple acts of forgetfulness like these are scary because they raise the specter of Alzheimer's disease. But Alzheimer's is not the only health issue that can lead to forgetfulness, which is often treatable if you know the cause, according to the National Institute on Aging. Memory loss can happen at any age and for a number of reasons. Patients might experience memory loss and describe their symptoms similarly, but a doctor can tease apart what parts of the brain are affected. Things like polypharmacy, which means taking several medications at once, significant depression, and poor sleep can lead to memory complaints. When you drill down and find out what is actually happening with brain function, you can reassure someone. They have the capacity to learn and store information but because of their overloaded mental resources, they are having trouble. This is what usually is happening when someone complains of having trouble with memory. So the suggestion is to talk with your doctor about concerns you may have about your memory so the condition responsible for your symptoms can be addressed. Discussing your symptoms and taking various tests possibly including an MRI, may help your doctor determine what is affecting your memory. And in some cases, it's one or more of the following issues that could be playing a role. So there are five main issues or categories of things that affect memory loss, the article discusses. 
Now, the first one is sleep apnea. This is a common but treatable sleep disorder. It causes breathing to stop briefly and frequently throughout the night, and it is linked to memory loss and dementia. You might have sleep apnea if you wake up with a headache and have daytime fatigue, or if your partner complains of loud, of your loud snoring. Now, when not treated, sleep apnea affects spatial navigational memory, and that, according to a study in the Journal of Neuroscience, this type of memory includes. Being able to remember directions or where you put things, like your car keys. The research suggests that deep sleep, also known as rapid eye movement or REM sleep, plays an important role in memory. One explanation is that for people with sleep apnea, oxygen delivery to the brain is interrupted several hundred times during the night. The brain is stressed. So people wake up. The injury sleep apnea causes can show up as a variety of memory loss symptoms. Well, the brain just isn't getting enough oxygen, so of course it isn't going to function right, and someone is going to feel sleepy during the day, no matter how much they've slept, and concentration and memory are usually impaired. How do you know if you have sleep apnea or not? Well, as the article says, the most obvious clue is if your bed partner complains that you snore very loudly.、Uh, but that alone isn't enough to provide a clue as to whether or not you may have sleep apnea.、Uh, it is true that that is a red flag, a warning sign for sleep apnea, but not everyone. Who snores has sleep apnea, and vice versa. Not everyone who has it snores so loudly. Nonetheless, if there is any suspicion that you may have it,、uh, I'm going to give you a description of the typical pattern that is seen in sleep apnea. And if your bed partner reports that this happens to you, you can pretty much count on the fact that you do have it. And It's just a matter of scheduling a sleep study at a sleep clinic to document it, and then get treatment. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But first, what does sleep apnea look like during the night? Well, someone is snoring very loudly. The loud snoring is interrupted by dead silence, during which the snorer is not breathing, and that goes on for 10, 12, 15 seconds, sometimes more. And that silence and cessation of breathing is in turn interrupted by an even louder gasping, gulping, snorting sound. And after that, the loud snoring resumes as previously. If your bed partner has reported they have observed this even just once, then chances are excellent that you have sleep apnea and need to get it treated. Now, the trickiness is in treating it. And getting someone to comply with recommendations for treatment. Again, if they did, then it would prevent problems with memory. But people don't like the treatments, and we'll talk about that when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott.
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the show with all the latest mental health news. And your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about common causes of memory loss. The first one that we're addressing is sleep apnea. Uh, Before the break, I described uh, what it is and what it sounds like during the night. Now, A lot of people know that they have sleep apnea or strongly suspect that they have it, but knowingly don't get any treatment for it. And why is that? Well, because the most common treatment and the usual treatment of first choice is something called CPAP. stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. This consists of a small machine that pumps air through a long tube or hose that is attached to a mask that uh, fits over the face, either the entire face or just the nose or uh, various different variations of that. And the goal and the purpose is to keep the airway open, which prevents the snoring. The snoring sound comes from closure of the airway. And with the airway being open, not only does the snoring stop, but uh, enough air and enough oxygen gets into the body and especially into the brain. The person has much more restful sleep and therefore their brain gets enough oxygen. Their brain feels and functions better, including thinking, concentration, and memory. Now, uh, understandably so, a lot of people do not find the idea of sleeping attached to this machine with this mask over their face to be the least bit attractive. 
Uh, nonetheless, that is the treatment of first choice for sleep apnea. There are other treatments that <clears throat> I think are not as ideal. The worst of all is the surgery. Uh, there's a procedure that's called the UPP, stands for uvulopalatoplasty, and it cuts out the uvula, that little thing that hangs down the back of your throat, uh, cuts off the back of the soft palate, and if you still have your tonsils and adenoids in there, they come out too. Uh, the problem with this procedure is it permanently reworks the entire anatomy of the back of your throat, but it may not be a permanent cure for sleep apnea, which may come back despite all that surgery, especially if the patient gains some weight. Uh, there are some appliances, uh, mouth guards and things like that, which purportedly help, but they're not appropriate for all patients. Uh, the bottom line is, it isn't only that untreated sleep apnea will interfere with memory, which is uh, a big concern, but untreated sleep apnea is also a risk factor for heart attack and stroke. So memory is certainly one important issue that treating sleep apnea can help with, uh, but it's also important to treat it for other reasons. And what I tell people who don't find the idea of sleeping with a CPAP machine palatable is once you see how much more energy and how more alert you feel during the day, you'll not want to sleep without it. Now, the next common cause of memory loss the article discusses is silent stroke. Now, there are obvious changes in the ability to think and move normally that come from strokes that block major brain blood vessels, but mild memory problems can also develop gradually after silent strokes that affect smaller blood vessels. And in other words, why are they silent? Well, um, they don't cause severe dramatic changes in terms of things like a, a major stroke would cause paralysis, uh, would cause the inability to speak, and so on. But the changes in brain function from these silent strokes can range from mild to severe are called vascular cognitive impairment, vascular referring to blood vessels, and that's the effect that these silent strokes have on the brain when these vessels uh, basically are stroked out. The brain is especially vulnerable to blocked or reduced blood flow, depriving it of oxygen and essential nutrients. And people with memory loss are at greater risk for stroke. Forgetfulness may be an early warning sign of stroke. That, according to a study published in the journal, also called stroke. Now, medication is the next cause of memory problems discussed in the article. And this has certainly gotten a lot of press and attention, um, where an, a different article came out recently talking about how very commonly prescribed prescription and over-the-counter medications uh, including especially things used to uh, treat insomnia uh, are, are found to interfere with memory and even 
be considered risk factors for dementia. So memory loss could be a sign that your medication needs to be adjusted. And according to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, several types of drugs can affect memory, including sleeping pills. Uh, we know that prescription sleeping pills devastate memory, things like Ambien and Lunesta and Restoril. Uh, also, antihistamines, uh, Benadryl, thought to be benign, thought to be something you could take often if you needed to. Well, turns out people who take it have problems with their memory. And then there are anti-anxiety medications. Of course, we know that drugs like Valium and Ativan and Xanax and Clonopin do devastating things to memory and thinking and concentration and uh, are quite severely addictive and in general very dangerous drugs. Uh, so, you know, they degrade memory. Antidepressants are listed here. Um, it is true that uh, many SSRIs uh, and several SNRIs uh, can affect short-term memory. Uh, for those of you who don't know, SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That includes Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Selexa, and Lexapro. SNRIs uh, also can be associated with problems with short-term memory, and those include Effexor, Pristique, Balta, and uh, Fetsima, and Savella. Now, <clears throat> how is it then that a group of medications that we psychiatrists and many, many other doctors prescribe to treat anxiety and depression can interfere with memory? Uh, well, I can tell you based on my experience in my practice, it's a very individual thing. Like most side effects, uh, while it certainly does happen often enough to know it is an effect of the medications, it's that highly individual connection between a given patient and their body and brain chemistry in particular and the chemical structure of the drug. Uh, meaning, you know, sometimes certain drugs will give certain patients that side effects the side effect of uh, problems of short-term memory and, and other times not. Um, I think if in my observation, what, what happens is if someone is having that side effect of the antidepressant, uh, if the dose is reduced or the medication is stopped, that goes away. And then certain painkillers. Um, Narcotic analgesics, especially uh, opiate-containing uh, painkillers, you know, they can cause cognitive dysfunction, including problems with attention, concentration, and memory. Certain cholesterol-lowering medications have the reputation for causing a kind of brain fog and memory loss, and uh, people do things like uh, take other supplements to try to compensate for that. Uh, the CoQ10, which really is more intended to compensate for effects on muscle tissue, but some people take it to help compensate for effects on uh, cognitive functions. Diabetes medications uh, can also affect memory, but the tricky part about 
implicating the medication is that diabetes affects the small blood vessels all over the body, including in the brain, so they can actually uh, be affected in diabetes, and this would increase the risk factor for the uh, vascular uh, cognitive impairment that we talked about before. The FDA also cautions that cholesterol-lowering drugs known as statins could slightly increase the risk for reversible cognitive side effects. These include memory loss and confusion. A commonly prescribed type 2 diabetes drug called metformin has also been associated with memory problems. And the article says a study published in Diabetes Care found that people with diabetes who took the drug had worse cognitive performance than those who did not take it. And then there is nutritional deficiency as a cause of memory loss. Now, this is not so common in uh, today's situation unless you're talking about uh, places where people live in poverty. However, a lack of sufficient vitamin B12, one of the B vitamins essential for normal function of nerve tissue, can lead to confusion and even dementia. Each day, you should get about 2.4 micrograms of B12 in your diet from natural sources like dairy products, meat, and fish or from foods fortified with vitamin B12, like fortified cereals. Again, this is not hard to achieve uh, for those people who do not live in abject poverty and uh, eat a decent amount of food. But unfortunately for the poor, this uh, might be much more common. And there are other situations, regardless of socioeconomic status, if someone has absorption problems because of some problems with their small intestine, uh, that's another reason that uh, B12 uh, can be deficient. In the elderly, absorption is not as efficient, and so it might be common in the elderly, reg again, regardless of socioeconomic status. Well, we have one more very important cause of memory loss to discuss along with some less common causes. We'll do that after we get back from our next commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. 
We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that's individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. We're talking about causes of memory loss. And the last and most important category includes stress, anxiety, and depression. Uh, I alluded in an earlier segment that these things definitely are known to interfere with memory. Now, significant stress or anxiety may lead to problems with attention and memory. This is especially common among people who may be juggling home and work responsibilities and are not sleeping well. Usually, easing stress can improve memory. Untreated chronic stress can lead to depression, which could also affect brain function. A mood disorder may improve with medication and counseling. Now, uh, there are less common causes of memory loss that we should also mention. The article discusses these, and so these other conditions that can lead to problems with memory include infections. Memory loss may be attributed to severe infection around the brain, including neurosyphilis. Head injuries, uh, symptoms of a mild brain injury, may include confusion and trouble with memory and concentration. And tumors, memory and the ability to process information may be affected by brain tumors. In addition, treatments for a tumor can affect your memory, including brain surgery, chemotherapy, or radiation therapy. And finally, a very important cause of problems with memory, alcoholism and substance abuse. Both alcoholism and drug abuse can affect memory. A study published in Neurology found that men who drank heavily showed signs of mental decline one to six years earlier than light drinkers. Just another in a long list of reasons not to abuse alcohol. All right, next up on tonight's show, uh, while we're considering the impact on memory, which is a health concern for those of middle age, what about the fact that a recent study finds loneliness and social isolation are just as much a threat to longevity as obesity. Ask people what it takes to live a long life, and they'll say things like exercise, take your omega-3s, and see your doctor regularly. 
But now, research from Brigham Young University shows that loneliness and social isolation are just as much a threat to longevity as obesity. The effect of this is comparable to obesity, uh, something that public health takes very seriously. According to the study's lead author, who says we need to start taking our social relationships more seriously. Loneliness and social isolation can look very different. For example, someone may be surrounded by people, but still be lonely, still feel alone. Other people may isolate themselves <clears throat> because they prefer to be alone. The effect of this on longevity, however, is much the same for these two different scenarios. The association between loneliness and risk for mortality among young populations is actually greater than among older populations. Although older people are more likely to be lonely and face a higher mortality risk, loneliness and social isolation better predict premature death among populations younger than 65 years of age. Not only are we at the highest recorded rate of living alone across the entire country, but we're at the highest recorded rates ever on the planet. With loneliness on the rise, the authors are predicting a possible loneliness epidemic in the future. Now, the study analyzed data from a variety of health studies. Altogether, the sample included more than 3 million participants from studies that included data for loneliness, social isolation, and living alone. Controlling for variables such as socioeconomic status, age, gender, and pre-existing health conditions, they found that the effect goes both ways. The lack of social connections presents an added risk, and the existence of relationships provides a positive health effect. This new study appears in the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science. Previous research puts the heightened risk of mortality from loneliness in the same category as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and being an alcoholic. This current study suggests that not only is the risk for mortality in the same category as these well-known risk factors, it also surpasses health risks associated with obesity. In essence, the study is saying the more positive psychology we have in our world, the better we're able to function, not just emotionally, but physically. There are many things that help to subdue the effects of loneliness. With the evolution of the Internet, people can keep in contact over distances that they couldn't before. However, the superficiality of some online experiences may miss emotional context and depth. Too much texting with each other can actually hurt a romantic relationship, for example. The authors of that texting study note, however, that saying something sweet or kind in a text is universally beneficial. There you have it, loneliness as important a risk factor for 
impairing longevity as obesity. Next up on Psychiatry Today, I want to talk to you about a study that also kind of got a lot of attention. It is the careers that put you at the highest risk for suicide. So let's take a look at that. There is a lesser known occupational hazard associated with certain jobs, according to this new study published in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, and that occupational hazard is suicide. In the United States, suicide results in roughly 36,000 deaths per year. Uh, sadly, during the time that my show will be on the air, between three and four people will take their own lives. It is becoming the leading cause of injury-related deaths and uh, was so as far back as 2009. Worldwide, that statistic is close to 1 million. There's also been an uptick in workplace suicides recently, which is what the current research delves into. Researchers examined the difference between workplace and non-workplace suicide rates in the United States between 2003 and 2010 based on numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics Census of Fatal Occupational Injury Database. A look at the statistics. A little over 1,700 workers died as a result of workplace suicide over the eight-year span, which equated to a rough rate of 1.5 per million members of the workforce. Men were more than 15 times more likely to commit suicide in the workplace and the 65 to 74 year old demographic saw a four times greater risk than the much younger 16 to 24 year old set. According to the lead study author, an epidemiologist with the Division of Safety Research at the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the researchers discovered specific occupational fields also seemed to bump the risk of workplace suicide. They found that those in protective service occupations, such as police and firefighters, had the highest workplace suicide rates, followed closely by those in farming, fishing, and forestry occupations. Although this analysis in particular did not look into specific reasons for the increased suicide rates among specific occupations, the authors delve into some prior research on why for each of the most at-risk groups in their paper. Other research has suggested that the increased suicide risk among specific occupations may be linked with the availability and access to lethal means, such as drugs for medical doctors and firearms for law enforcement officers. Also, workplace stressors and economic factors have been found to be linked with suicide in these occupations. Here's what some of the study's new statistics looked like, along with possible reasons for the higher rates based on past research broken down by field. Law enforcement officers, 5.3 per million. Workplace suicide numbers were three and a half times greater for this group. Roughly 85% of the deaths involved firearms. Easy access to weapons may play a role in the higher suicide rates. Stressful on-the-job situations contributed to the inflated statistics among law enforcement workers. And there's farming, fishing, and forestry, 5.1 per million. Farming in particular is uh, linked with higher death rates from suicide. 
Uh, factors that may contribute include potential for financial losses, chronic physical illness, social isolation. Remember, we just talked about loneliness, work and home imbalance, depression due to chronic pesticide exposure, and barriers and unwillingness to seek mental health treatment. And uh, they also have an increased access to lethal means. And then there's installation, maintenance, and repair, which may be unexpected, 3.3 per million. Um, they had a high suicide rate, 7.1 deaths per million workers. Uh, automotive maintenance, repair occupations, higher suicide rates. Maybe the toxic effects of solvent exposure among auto workers, which can lead to memory issues, depression, emotional instability, even brain damage. But why every job with solvent exposure doesn't necessarily have higher suicide rates is not clear. These new numbers underline the issue of suicide among those who are gainfully employed. Uh, occupation defines identity. Personal issues creep into the workplace, and the lines between work and home life are blurring. Uh, there are mental health professionals and employers who should take note of these new statistics, consider the workplace a potential site for suicide prevention interventions. Occupational safety and health professionals should recognize these issues on the job and look, uh, pay closer attention to work-life issues to prevent uh, suicides and reduce these statistics. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap up the show for tonight. I hope that you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative, and I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.